Hello, welcome to the Big Smoke Podcast, our B edition, B meaning book. We're talking about genre fiction on this particular podcast. Every month we pick a book to read and discuss, and often we have a great guest with us who brings a book to the table for us all to talk about, and that's what we're doing today with uh, recurring guest, Mr. Martin Kessler. How's it going, yeah, man? Welcome, Martin. Hi, it's uh, good to be back. This has turned into my book club. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that way too. I feel like when we have an oddball choice, it's always at the hand of Martin Kessler. <laughs> I'm glad I can inflict my reading choices upon other people. The creeping hand, like a disease infecting the podcast. It's Martin Kessler. <laughs> well, I always feel like I cheat a little bit because, especially this one, it's something I was sort of planning on reading already. And it's just yeah. this kind of turned into a good excuse to read it and talk about it. So what are we talking about, John? I am your co-host, Chris Funderberg, by the way. Yes, and I'm sorry. This is John Cribbs talking, for anyone who didn't know. Uh, Martin, last time we had you on the book cast, it was for the Casca book, which is definitely one of the weirdest fucking books we've discussed for this, but <laughs> joy, joyously I, I think crazy. the last one I was on was um, Philip K. Dick. Yes. Oh, that's right. We talking also about in uh, Galactic yes, Popular. Another, again, these are great oddball choices. And we always love having you on. You always pick something great. And this is a first time read for you. Am I, is that correct? This, yeah. This what is it? Was, uh, you guys haven't said the title out loud. The Ninth Configuration, uh, AKA Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane. The worst title of all time. <laughs> the worst. I'm, I, I don't really want to call it that, but I, I thought it was funny that the film adaptation uh, later got renamed Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane for some markets. <laughs> but it's like, just get rid of that title. With or did you bring without the exclamation point. Uh, without the exclamation point. I, I took notice, yeah. yeah the funniest thing about that is punctuation that, in his titles. As I think very few people now remember Killer Kane as a villain from Buck Rogers, the old serial. Yeah, that's not really that's in the reference popular to. culture anymore. So it's not like I'm Twinkle Twinkle Mickey least, Mouse or anything. <laughs> they at least mention it in the book that, oh yeah, that's from, uh, not Flash Gordon. Buck Rogers. Uh, Buck Rogers, right. The scenes, uh, it's old people sci-fi. Yeah. <laughs> but but they, they at least bring it up in the books. So you're like, oh, okay, that's what that's it is. It is to. a book that definitely narrates its references yeah. nonstop. If it makes a it's, reference and you get it, don't worry, you'll have it. A few seconds, sentences later, explain to you what that uh, reference characters is. Characters talk aloud about like, oh yeah, this is kind of like Spellbound, right? Yeah. <laughs> this is like from Shakespeare. You know, very, very uh, hot on that tip. Uh, but anyway, so that's uh, the ninth configuration is what it was retitled and when it was republished in 1978. We'll talk a little bit about its history in a minute. But before we do, something that we do on this show is... A, an aperitif and a dessert with every one of our selections uh, a piece of artwork a book or a movie or what have you that you can look listen experience uh, along with the uh, book that we've chosen and so for our aperitif I'm going to shoot over to Chris to tell us what he would pair with William Peter Blatty's The Ninth Configuration um, this book is obviously uh, very influenced by uh, 1962's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I don't think this book exists without that. I was going to pick One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest at first, and I said, you know what? That's super duper obvious, maybe not that interesting. Let me find another knockoff or a movie that was for, that was influenced by One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest that I think would be interesting, especially in the context of this book. And I thought, oh, Sidney Lumet's The Hill 
right? Which is another book about um, a military prison. Uh, this time, it's it's a uh, it's the British Army, I believe, and they're in in North Africa, uh, and it's a bunch of people in the military prison who sort of um, clash in insane ways with the uh, uh, repressive draconian staff who sends them up and down this hill that's sort of like a little wooden sand structure uh, for punishment to run up and down in the sun all the time. And in particular, uh, Ossie Davis's character who pretends to go insane uh, as a way of not going actually insane in the film very much reminded me of Ninth Configuration. And I think that when you look at um, uh, the the hill, um, you can sort of see what a better version of Ninth Configuration might have been. Uh, we'll talk about the background of not Ninth Configuration and what happened to it and how it got warped in its production and sort of why it is the way it is. Because I think... Uh, what Ninth Configuration is as a movie, uh, which is what made me want to read the book, is Ninth Configuration is a, one of the great all-time, wow, I wonder what the fuck they were thinking when they made that movies, right? When you watch the Ninth Configuration, you really go, huh, what the hell was the idea here, right? In The Hill, you watch Sidney Lumet's The Hill before you read Ninth Configuration, you can see what Ninth Configuration was supposed to be, a socially charged movie about military culture and the relationship uh, between sanity and insanity, between uh, uh, repression and order, between all of these different things uh, that sort of come up in not the exact same things because Will and Peter Blatty is much more religious than Sidney Lumet, obviously. Um, but sort of a good, or not a good, I don't want to be hard on Night Configuration, a coherent, intelligible version of the Night Configuration would be The Hill, is what I would say. Interesting. And since they reenact The Great Escape at one point in this book, it's kind of the prison movie connection yes. as well, the kind of all-male cast uh stuck together inside of this military and it's compound. great it's one of my favorite lumet movies i think it's top five it's terrific it's my favorite connery performance of all time i don't even uh, know what second place is the molly mcguires no, it's I don't probably know. some other lumet connery yeah <laughs> it's terrific i'm glad you brought it up because uh john arminio in our last episode on bond in the 70s also brought it up and if we can bring up the hill on every single podcast episode i will be happy it's a great film Yes, you guys, I don't want to say listening to that episode is what made me think of this, but. <laughs> um, I, yeah, Martin, uh, what would you pair, what would you tell people to experience before reading the Ninth Configuration? Uh, I also put in my notes at first, went through the cuckoosness, and then thought that's way too obvious. So yeah, if I picked I something else <laughs> that has uh, Hill in the title. It's uh, Silent Hill 2, the video game, oh, which whoa. also deals Ooh. with um, similar sort of psychological themes and delusions kind of constructed out of regret. And uh, there's this big focus on atmosphere, especially, and that leans more to horror. But I thought, like, as something to kind of whet your appetite for ninth configuration, I thought playing that game... <laughs> Uh, even in some of the ways that it might be kind of clunky or <laughs> strange, uh, might might actually be a good 
uh, work of art to get people kind of yeah, excited. Yeah, and the, the atmosphere is similar. Atmosphere, it's that like same sort um, of foggy small town. Is it set that, in the in the Northwest? Is it specifically I, I cited it is, as that? Uh, in the Pacific Northwest. I'd have to double yeah. check, but I, I think it is where Silent Hill 2 is set. Like the ninth configuration, one thing that I really like about the film version, especially I think it comes through more in the film actually than in the book, is that really particular tone and atmosphere and it's uh you know the the it's like marx brothers meets solaris or something like that it's very strange (laughs) you know that that's kind of the thing i i like most about it i i don't know if i mean you sort of touched on it already uh chris but it's it's like um somebody who didn't exactly know what they were doing made exactly the movie they want a little bit is how it feels <laughs> like you know and I, I sort of i have a similar feeling uh with the, if you ever see the director's cut of exorcist 3 and that's kind yeah. of just how i take blatty as a, a filmmaker is like okay he doesn't exactly know how to do some of this but there's also stuff in there that i think is wow amazing or somebody who should not have been allowed to do whatever they want was allowed to do whatever they want (laughs) and then everyone got together to think about how to fix it that's the exodus three and and this book i feel like right well you guys choices make mine seem very boring but that's uh, a great choice martin i'm really really excited somebody picked a video game especially one is like well i'm glad famously so there's i feel like the pressure's (laughs) on you now (laughs) and i picked the englishman who went up a hill and came down a mountain um (laughs) only you and i remember that movie (laughs) um no, I picked uh, the one thing I remembered about the ninth, the movie, the ninth configuration, which I had seen, I hadn't read the book, uh, was uh, Jason Miller's performance in it. I love Jason Miller. I love him in The Exorcist. I think he's you know a really compelling actor. And Martin, you even uh, put up a great tweet recently uh, with how he says, uh, "Get the fuck out of here!" And that movie <laughs> is terrific. Uh, so I, I, I'm going to recommend a movie that he's not in. Um, it is. <laughs> A movie called uh, That Championship Season from 1982. Uh, what it is, is Jason Miller adapting and directing his own Pulitzer Prize winning play from 1972 uh, with a cast that's very connected to Ninth Configuration. Stacey Keach is in the movie. Um, William Friedkin was actually originally supposed to direct the movie, but had to bow out. Um, it's, uh, but it's got a lot of other interesting connections to it. It's, um, it's just a story about Again, it's an all-male cast. It's um, four adults living in Scranton who are all on a different kind of runaway train to failure. But their connection is, their lifelong friends, their connection is this uh, championship season of basketball in high school. So they're going to a party at their coach's house. And he's played by Robert Mitchum. And it becomes apparent throughout this uh, movie, uh, based on the play, that that was the height of their life. This, this, this moment, this, this feeling of togetherness from this win. And now it's just all kind of pathetic and horrible. And Mitchum, who's, you know, terminally ill, um, has kind of been this shallow sort of inspiration for their lives. Uh, but it's a great cast. It's Bruce Dern, um, Paul Servino and Martin Sheen. Although I think Martin Sheen's a little bit miscast. It was supposed to be William Holden playing the lead role 
but he actually died right before oh they I made never, the movie. I didn't know that yeah so he would have been great he would have been a perfect choice absolutely uh, but it was funny watching this movie again for the first time in a while uh just one thing i noticed about it the opening of the film before they kind of get into the theatrical sort of one setting that it shares also with the ninth configuration um the opening it's at a big fair that they're having sort of a campaign uh thing that bruce dern is putting on a fourth of july it's just like the fourth of july montage from jaws the Bill Conti music even kind of copies that playful John Williams score from that movie. And then in the very next scene, a guy at City Hall, he's wearing an Eagles jersey with number seven on it. Chris, in 1982, who was number seven for the Eagles? My father, Isaac, no, Ron Jaworski, Jaws. Jaws, Jaws was the Eagles quarterback. <laughs> and my dad looks like him. And when we lived in near Philadelphia, people would come up all the time and be like, so are you a, are you, you're a, can I get a, an autograph? And he'd sign them and say Isaac Murray Funderburg, and they'd be like, what is this? You're like, I, I'm not Ron Jaworski. It's my alter ego. I'm not um, Jaws. So I was already thinking Jaws, so when I saw that jury's annual, I had to bring that up. Um, but no, and, then, and then what did you talk about on the Bond Arminio podcast? Bill Jaws. Conti? Jaws. <laughs> oh yeah, Jaws. Benjamin <laughs> Jaws. It's anyway, it is, it is it is the summer. It's July. Um, but uh it's it's really good, it's a compelling movie. Doesn't all like my configuration, not all that works, but it's a good film. And then just as, as a side to say a great Jason Miller performance I don't think gets talked about enough is uh uh, Robert Mulligan's The Nickel Ride from 1974, oh. which apparently is the role he took over Taxi Driver. Whoa. Although oh. the time he doesn't seem to like sync up, so I don't know how true that is, but that's the one he wanted to do. And he is, he is fantastic. I think he's much better than he would have been in Taxi Driver in that movie. That's interesting. That's a good choice too. That's That championship season is a movie I've only ever heard you mention. I know it's something, something you like. It's one of those movies that, yeah, when I was younger, I feel like had a really, like when we were teenagers, people still talked about it like a great movie people should see. And now it just seems like it's dried up from the from the consciousness. Which is surprising Consider, I mean, I think in the theatrical circles, people love it because it's considered like one of those classic Tony winning plays. Um, but in 99, they did a new TV movie version of it, which I, I want to I wanna say, Paul Servino directed and plays the coach in it. And also yeah. Jason Patrick, Jason Miller's son, oh, plays one of the sense. characters. Uh, so like it's something that keeps getting revived in some form or another and is constantly having, you know, theatrical revivals. So it is strange it does get brought up enough. But moving on to the book, uh, Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane uh, apparently started life uh, as a 66 novel called uh, I mean, it's the night configuration. It was called Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane in 66. And then when he decided to write a script about it in 78, he reworked the novel because he wanted to include this astronaut character who appears in a scene from The Exorcist and became Captain Billy Cutshaw. Um, so I, I kind of like it right away how it's sort of a novelization of a script that was based on a novel all by the same guy. Which he tried to have made into a film earlier prior to The Exorcist with William Friedkin directing. So it's yeah. a very convoluted kind of history that yeah. sandwiches the production of The Exorcist. Yeah, and the first thing I feel like you need to say when talking about 
who William Peter Blatty was in 1966 is that before The Exorcist, uh, which is 73, is that when The Exorcist? Comedy writer. He was a comedy writer who had written scripts for like uh, A Shot in the Dark and What Did You Do in the War, Daddy, and Lily Darling. And he, in interviews, has talked about how when he was trying to get The Exorcist made, people would say, William Peter Blatty, the comedy guy, right? Then after Exorcist was made, he would try and go back and write the comedies he had done before. And people would say, William Peter Blatty, the Exorcist guy. And that like it was, he was definitely in one place. And I think when you read, there's very, you say it was like, you felt some of that Marx Brothers flavor in the movie. I don't necessarily feel it as much uh, in, it, until you read the book. That's what it is. It's like a countercultural comedy. It's a 60s style countercultural madcap comedy, which takes that sort of Marx Brothers, specifically duck soup style, and puts it into a sort of socially relevant comedy. You know, like What Did You Do in the War, Daddy, or Bed Sitting Room, or even MASH, you know, that yep. kind of thing, or One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Like, and I think the, book feels the book very first. much like that like i i was projecting a little bit on the book how i knew the performances were in the film and it's hard to kind of get that out of your head but i think if i had just read the book on its own i never would have imagined it being realized as like that kind of a film where um, yeah you know everyone almost has like they do sort of allude to the and we all read the, character the rewritten in. book yes, we read yeah. the, the older rewritten one not the more madcap version that apparently yeah. existed like uh you know, in the book, they mentioned that like Colonel Kane's in this sort of uh, dreamy state. He's tired. He's sort of monotone, and that that is worked in there. But you sort of picture everyone else talking with this kind of snappy dialogue, and it reads yeah. as snappy. And then you watch the film, and it's not performed as snappy dialogue. It's performed in this sort of you know dreamy kind of completely deadpan way that's maybe not <laughs> what I would expect. So, Yes, the yeah. movie makes it, like I said, hard to understand where they're coming from. But if you think about Blatty as being the a shot in the dark, uh, you know, Blake Edwards guy, the, yes. the rhythms of it, uh, especially in the book, make a lot of sense that way. Just sort of people popping into frame and saying their wacky line or walking through the background of a shot with all the dogs that are going to be in the Shakespeare plays, right? Like you can yeah. picture that very easily uh if you understand where it's coming from john what's the what's the plot of it let's go a little through the plot before we dig in so the plot of the ninth configuration all right it's uh there is one scene where they break away and go to a bar there's a flashback scene but mostly we're stuck within the confines of uh center 18 which is a mansion deep in the forest of seacoast washington state which has been built to resemble a medieval castle uh, was loaned to the military in 1968. And so we have basically uh, mental patients that the military have sent to this castle for treatment. And we cut in on the day that they're getting a new head psychiatrist who is a man named Colonel Hudson Kane. And the, the general thought of this place is that everyone there, they're soldiers who fought in Vietnam or waiting to be shipped to Vietnam, uh, are probably faking their insanity in order to stay out of combat. But some of them who were there is uh, there's Lieutenant Frankie Reno, who intends to put on the place of Shakespeare using dogs. Uh, there's a man named Price who believes he's a spaceman with a flying belt. There's Fairbanks who thinks that he can walk through walls. And, and that he's doing swashbuckler stuff. Yes, Fairbanks. He thinks he's a actual, the actual Fairbanks, as it were. 
And um, then there's Captain Billy Cutshaw, who is an astronaut who, um, right before his launch, uh, had a freak out, completely lost his mind and was taken out. And ever since has uh, just been completely bonkers. And everyone is the main, the main question of the book, at least from, from Hudson Kane, what he wants to know is why doesn't Billy Cutshaw want to go to the moon? And the kind of interesting in, insight here is that Cutshaw is supposed to be the astronaut from what I consider the scariest scene from The Exorcist, where uh, Reagan's mother's having the party and he's the guest of honor there. And she shows up and tells him, where they're talking about him going up into space, she says, you're going to die up there and pisses on the rug. Uh, for me, that's that kind of thing in The Exorcist is always kind of scarier than the possession stuff, things oh, that are really sure. just kind of come out of nowhere. Um, but Martin, we were just kind of talking earlier about The Exorcist. What uh, what are your thoughts on The Exorcist in terms of a book? Um, in terms of a book, I think it's better than the film. It's one of my favorite novels, actually. I've read it multiple times at this point, And I, I think... Like, obviously the film, it's one of the great horror movies ever made. But I, I feel like once I read the book, I sort of felt like, ah, oh, like the film's kind of missing this and missing that and kind of gets too much into the special effects. And for me, like the book, one thing I really liked was this idea of the rational interrogation of something completely irrational, this sort of, you know, especially with the, um, the priest character, who's the, the most rational one kind of, deconstructing the situation and being like well you know could it be psychosomatic could it be this could it be that could and like assuming it is supernatural how do we know it's the devil and that uh, exorcism will help and maybe she's got psychic powers like him going through the whole process I feel like that's something that didn't quite make it into the film and there's some stuff I know like the film kind of put back in the scene where the two priests are talking during the exorcism and, and stuff like that for the uh, extended version, which th maybe that's the only kind of worthwhile addition to the extended version. But like for me, the book's not even necessarily supernatural. Uh, you know, maybe it is, but like it feels only sort of incidentally supernatural or only incidentally a horror. And to me, it's more just about that. How does a rational person deal with you know, the irrationality of existence in the universe. And you can see a lot of those themes carry over into Ninth Configuration, though it feels, I, I think you can tell that it was initially written first because it almost feels like him kind of working out those ideas to begin with. And, you know, it kind of comes back and polishes them off. But yeah, you know, at it's, times it's almost the uh, inverse where it's like the, uh, the absurdity kind of interrogating rationality and sort of yeah. coming away with, well, I'm not convinced. And it, in some ways it pairs very well with The Exorcist, even though I think it's, it's kind of in inferior as a, as a book like um, I don't know, just coming off of The Exorcist the film you're like wow that was amazing and oh my god it has a sequel I'm going to watch The Exorcist 2 The Heretic oh wait this isn't what I want at all and I know some people <laughs> like uh, Exorcist 2 I know some people even prefer it over the, uh, the first one Spencer if you're listening hi but uh, <laughs> you know when they discovered the film The Ninth Configuration it's like oh like this is the real Exorcist 2 and it kind of feels like that in a lot of ways where like you know aside from the connection of uh, the astronauts who it doesn't really feel that strong if you watch the films because it's a different actor. You have um, Scott Wilson playing Cutshaw in the movie. And, it, you know, of course, Jason Miller is in it, but he's playing a completely different role. And, you know, it, it, it's not like a real direct sequel to The Exorcist. But no, it but feels I feel like, like a when he but it's becomes... spawn of the, Exorcist it's, without, yeah, when, like, without question. Like when he becomes the Exorcist, Exorcist guy, yeah. I think that Blatty's big thing is that 
you know, he wants to be a guy who gives us scenes of two people having a theological conversation about evil in the world, you know, sort of defining evil and what, and if evil actually comes from a source, you know, like the devil or the antichrist or a demon or what have you, or if it's something that we have to worry about, like as humanity, I think his three major works uh, post exorcist, which are, you know, exorcist, this one ninth configuration and exorcist three, mm-hmm. you mostly get, you know, two people in a room just having this kind of conversation, these sort of thematic yes. questions about where evil derives from and how, how to not only how to quantify it, but how to identify it. Well, and the nature of the universe and the sort of existential terror of just the bigness of it all and how, how small and how, incapable of understanding certain things we are and the the greater horror of actually understanding some of these things. And I feel like, you know, a lot of these sort of big ontological questions, he, he kind of comes at them head on. He doesn't try to shoot a lot yeah, of it. Like, immense words. Like I no, think, it's uh, very, it's very like... Uh, two people uh, sit down and they talk about like, you, oh yeah, isn't it scary that the universe is going to die someday? Like, thing. <laughs> yeah. No, it has like late night cup of coffee and smokes. Yeah you know, clove cigarettes feel to a lot of the writing in, in the book. Absolutely. Which, uh, but Martin, yeah. let me, this is, it's weird. I, the movie, The Exorcist, like John, to me, the first 20 minutes or so when it's uh, all of the medical alienation. That's the best is, stuff, yeah. It's really upsetting. I, I can For me, agree. the rest of the movie didn't ever do anything for me because I was raised an atheist. And so none of it's scary. It's all silly it, to it me. It gets silly. Once the and, head starts spinning around and all that stuff, It like for me, it always kind of loses something in the film. I think, like you said, those medical scenes, that's the scariest stuff in the film because it's something bad happening to a little girl that they can't explain and like yes the massive it's what you're saying the massive way you can't understand the cruelty of the universe is present in that and it's real so it's way more scary to me than you know what if there was uh, a demon in you named legion you know and there's sure. a lot of them because my name is legion because there's a lot of us and so right. like, well, that sounds kind of dumb to me truthfully. well and i think like yeah. there's certain things that kind of got blunted for the film version too like i, I think you can read some of the exorcist stuff as being uh, allegorical for sexual abuse in yeah. in the book and that i think like it's only almost barely in the film but it's basically not in the movie i think like you can kind of make those connections like um I mean, yeah. one, one of the things people should always ask themselves when they watch The Exorcist is the film director who gets thrown out the window, like, what was he doing in that little girl's bedroom without anyone else around? <laughs> like, you know, yeah. I think there's certain questions you sort of can ask when you watch the film, but that stuff, it's a little it's, bit... You're making it sound like Turn of the Screw, which is another book we discussed I, I think in here, the, the, where the, when you read that implication yeah. to it, it all becomes deeply unsettling. To, to me, The Exorcist, it, it's more like a Turn of the Screw kind of thing, the novel, I mean. And... Um, yeah, like I remember seeing the film when they had the re-release and, you know, with like a younger audience, uh, you know, there were these young teenagers kind of giggling, like whenever she was uh, swearing, Linda Blair was like swearing and they were like, ah, ha, ha, you know, this yeah. is going to be a silly old horror movie. And then it got to those uh, scenes where they're doing the cat scans and stuff like that. And you can tell these kids got so uncomfortable. They shut right up. I, I think some of them might have even left and not come back. Like you can tell they just like upset them. You know, <laughs> that yeah. was kind of like, exciting to see is that, the, you know, it still obviously has Although that. Although I, I agree with Carol J. Clover, that vocal 
uh, audiences laughing and sort of barking at the screen during horrific stuff is not an indication no, that no. they aren't scared. But I, I you think know, you could tell it's frequently that they were... a test to show your friends you're not scared. Sure. You know? Well, like you can tell they were gearing up for one kind of movie and they got something else and they yeah. didn't make it to the split split piece scope. Some of them didn't anyway. I think some of them might have left. You know, they the wanted thing... more Pazuzu. They, that's what they Marcia's wanted. They wanted Pazuzu. crazy Pazuzu doing Pazuzu stuff. The, <laughs> that was actually the, the original I, name yeah. of the of the second movie. Was crazy Pazuzu doing Pazuzu stuff? <laughs> John Borman, I could actually picture him pitching something like that. <laughs> and the tagline is "Hope you like locusts." Yeah. Um, I I the thing I took from another thing I took from the the book, and I haven't read it since I was a kid, but it's still the only novel I've ever read in one sitting. Like I was yeah, really like uh, into that book when I read it. Uh, it's like the role of adults, you know, uh, mm-hmm. responsibility, you know, like you think yes. of a priest as someone who has all the answers, who knows everything and can make things better. And through this character of Damon Karras, uh, Damien Karras, it's, you know, he loses his mother and it's like, my mommy, you know, he's like, yeah. he feels human emotions as any of us would, uh, which is something I think that translates even resonates even deeper in Exorcist 3 and certainly comes up in this book where, you know, the idea is the doctor who comes in is going to be able to cure these people is more sure. fucked up than any. And, uh, you know, the uh, the correlation between the idea of a, a priest and a psychiatrist roughly doing the same kind of a job it comes mm-hmm. up in, in I, I think, uh, well, it's in both books. Definitely. Well, he's wearing a priest uh, collar in uh, in Ninth Configuration, isn't Right. It? You yeah. know, and I think there's a line in the book that where he says, like, oh, you're basically a priest without the, the crock. Or you're the, a defrocked priest, yeah. The defrocked priest, yeah. <laughs> um, so, I, I, like, the exorcist of stuff, of course, one of the main characters is a priest who's really a psychiatrist, and this is a psychiatrist who's more like a priest where he just sort of sits and he listens to them any kind of instead of trying to diagnose them, you know, like, I mean, of course, you find out there's a plot twist where uh, he's not really a psychiatrist, but that's him playing that role of the priest where he kind of Is it supposed to be a plot twist? It was one of those things that's so obvious, it's alluded to It's alluded to very strongly. um, That I I wasn't sure if you were supposed to be being taken for a ride. I mean, I'm, I'm calling it a plot twist just for the sake of people coming at me about spoilers or whatever but oh i just i, I, I meant think, like uh, i didn't even yeah, know if if you were I mean, supposed yeah. to be surprised like that to me, it's it his felt very obvious because like again i've, I've seen the film yeah. first so like all those clues in the book really stand out like i don't know if maybe you're reading it through the first time if it does feel more like a, a big twist but like it is it's not that out of the blue you know it, it does build yeah. up to it that you know to me the, the twist you know. is is that it's his brother there yeah, with him. That, it feels like mm, i well, feel it's... like he's trying to set up a rope-a-dope where you're like yeah i know he's not really the psychiatrist and yeah. then to hit you with bang but that's his brother and you're like oh I, mean, I didn't know that there are quite a few of this like little sub-genre of uh, <laughs> these types of stories like a more recent one that's uh, probably obvious for people is the shutter, shutter island, island. Yeah, yeah you know like mm-hmm. I'm sure that was drawing on this to some degree, but there, there's a couple others. I had a, a screenwriting professor in university who wrote one for Lifetime that came oh, out yeah. around the same time as uh, as Shutter Island, and I just remember him being like, "Oh, like as soon as they <laughs> came out at the same time." But uh, you know, but going, so but going back to your idea though that yeah. the psychiatrist and the priest are sort of a, yeah. a similar function. Like, like I, well, I think that's kind of what Cain does. That's therapeutic. Is he's yeah. basically being like a priest for these. Well, they they quote the uh, right. Hamlet in in the book. Uh, speaking of Philip K. Dick, they say, you know, the time is out of joint. 
which is the, the quote, oh, oh, cursed spite that ever I was born to set it right, which is like a lamentation of uh, a surgeon, right? Who is, who resents having to repair a dislocated shoulder that's out of joint. The idea that like someone comes into this bad social situation uh, or, you know, a church full of sinners and it's upon them, they kind of take the burden of curing them in some way or, or bringing them back into the light. There's another line where he actually takes uh, I said there were also one thing where they leave, but there's actually two. He uh, takes uh, the, the astronaut out to the church. Uh, Kane takes him to mass. Right. Yep. And uh, at one point, Billy stands up and he says, um, infinite goodness is creating a being you know in advance is going to complain. Yes. Which I think sums up psychiatry. But now that you bring it up, I think sums up sort of the priesthood at the same time. Like that's you sort of need those people who are there to complain to function, to actually have a function. Right. Right. Uh, talking about the, the kind of one location, two, three location nature of this, uh, what I thought reading it especially, a lot of it does kind of read, not exactly like a screenplay, but very close where it's very uh, dialogue driven. And, the, you know, there's some wonderful turns of phrase in the action, but I thought, you know, like if I read the book on its own, um, to me it would scream stage play more than it would scream movie adaptation. Mm, sure. Like I think probably today you could stage uh, a theater production of the ninth configuration where you get a bunch of dude actors together and you have your castle set and you have your church, little church set, and then you have the biker bar set at the end. <laughs> and like, the, I, I was thinking that would be, uh, you know, relatively easy to translate it into a stage play. Oh, definitely. All you have to do is bring out, you know, the, the counter for the bar and then you just go right in. <laughs> yeah, um, I can sort of picture that as it was going along. No, I feel that too. It's a really short book. It was thing. a very quick read. That was Very sparse uh, on action and heavy, heavy yeah. on dialogue. And, and lots, uh, of, lots of entrances and exits. Yeah, there's definitely. There's a couple, like couple differences between the book and the film, I noticed, but a lot of the film kind of comes from the book verbatim. You know, some of the dialogue exchanges are exactly the same. Scenes play out exactly the same. The ending's a little bit different. Um, actually like the epilogue in the book better than the film's epilogue. <laughs> but The main uh, thing I remember from the movie yeah. is that's not in the book is Robert Lotion blackface. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so there's a couple differences like that. And there's just some things that are realized in the film in such a strange way that you wouldn't necessarily expect. Like... To me, the, you know, there's uh, even with the inclusion of dreams and some of the absurdism in the book, it doesn't read as surreal in the way that certain details in the film do. Like the, the opening title, when you have that rocket ready for the moon launch and the moon comes up as this giant projected background and it's like a hundred times bigger than it should be. It's such a scary and weird image and sort of that sets the tone for the film, which I, I think the tone is a little bit different and more specific in the film or messier maybe is a better way of describing it but it, it's I don't know like partly you have that kind of atmosphere that comes out of like just a bunch of these character actor guys kind of stuck in together and you know it's a little bit like uh, John Carpenter's The Thing or something like that where it just like has that tension that natural kind of tension but you know that's sort of offset with this weird humor and these gags and well for it, me the visual that i first that first made me want to see this movie was i saw the um faber published screenplay that on the cover has the astronaut on the moon with jesus crucified in front right. of them which is a pretty striking image you know and when you connect that to the astronaut character from the exorcist it's like oh shit i really want to see this yeah um so it does have striking visuals that i I, it, it, I would be shocked to learn that, you know, that wasn't the moment where he was like, oh, I want to write a book based on this image in my head of, you know, Jesus crucified on the moon. 
right. um, that maybe does res- doesn't really resonate when it comes to the actual execution of it. But I find it interesting from that it. era too. All of the like, like everybody. I know it's because the space race is happening, but so many countercultural, uh, specifically comedic stuff thinks like moon and space imagery is funny and perfect for their satire you know like you know like everything bang from, straight to the moon alice well like mouse on the moon <laughs> or you know the the charlie and the chocolate fag in the great glass elevator the charlie and the chocolate factory sequel there's just so much or like whitey on the moon there's so much like the moon is comedic gold in some way in my for my social satire like the moon as metaphor you know it's really weirdly popular and i feel like it never lands i feel like it's never evocative the way it's supposed to be you know it feels like a lot of uh in uh naked when thulis and cartilage are discussing you know they're like and what do they think they're gonna find up there that they can't find down here and she's like and aren't spaceships just like big metal pricks and you're like Ugh. you know like ugh. a lot of so that character feel, not the dialogue yeah 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 it feels like the dialogue of just like ugh. like i get yeah yeah they are big metal pricks can i go now you know kind of thing also gotta throw out wallace and grom at a grand day out obviously a <laughs> great moon comedy great it also moon. feels like very specific to that point in time in the late 60s like yeah e- even the redone version i think at the end it's sort of you know, they mentioned in the epilogue, oh, this soldier died in 1968 or something. So you sort of feel like this is set in the, you know, maybe 68 or something like that. Or I think even working backwards, maybe it's 69, they said, and then it's like uh, three years after the main action. So like maybe this, the bulk of the action is taking place in 1966 or something like that. It's sort of a weird time frame, but it feels like it's trying to tap into some kind of zeitgeisty thing that it, you know it almost feels after the fact that it's trying to get back to that 60s um, atmosphere milieu but like especially the film coming out in 1980 it's sort of almost weird trying to recapture that kind of 60s feel but uh, I don't know it, it, it feels a little bit dislocated in that way I thought the best part of the parts of the novel if they had been adapted at the time the original book came out by like John Frankenheimer in like the late 60s shot in black and white with yeah, it, it, Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster and maybe throwing Rip Torn humorously since his name gets dropped a few times in the book. Yeah. Um, name of the dog. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> would have been if you did like a Birdman of Alcatraz sort of approach to it, I think would have been more effective than trying so. to do it later on. Yeah. It's weird. It's weird. The more. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. The more Blatty is allowed to be himself, the worse it gets is that he's really, um, a hack in the sense of he needs a commercial system to fashion his stuff into something better. That his original erratic ideas are erratic and incoherent. And the more his work gets pressed into a mold, the better it is for the original interesting qualities. Like when he's allowed to go off and do his own thing, it's always a mess. And when he's kept on tracks working for somebody else, it's quite excellent most of the time. You know, I'm not some big, you know, Darling Lily fan or anything, but like most of the time it comes out, comes out better. Um, it and it and especially the ninth configuration movie, which is one of the great like 
what are they thinking movies. You know what I mean? Where you sort of have to do an archaeology of intent to get there and why John's idea of like recasting it to do it in a different way or me talking about The Hill, I think it's a movie that lends it to the more you look into it, the more you want to fix it in some way. But on the other hand, I was thinking about this where a lot of times when somebody's like, that movie's crazy. It's so fucking crazy. It's 85 minutes of total boredom and three minutes of total incompetence. And that's what that movie, that crazy movie is, is that like, it's really tough and boring to sit to. And then there's a few scenes where the filmmakers messed up so spectacularly. You're like, I it's don't know like what this 90% is. 90% of cult movies, yeah. Yeah. Ninth <laughs> Configuration is not that. Ninth no. Configuration is bizarre from start to finish in a way that is deeply compelling the whole time. You are engrossed by the mysteries of its inner workings, you know, it turns you into a psychologist priest when you're watching it, where you're like, movie, just tell, I'm going to, I'm here to listen. Just tell me what you're thinking. And it starts raving and you're like, hmm, but how does that make you feel movie? You know, just like kind of going with it in, in some way until you get to the end of it. Um, which I think sets it apart from a lot of uh, uh, cult films in that same way. It feels like a legit cult, like pagan cult experience, not like fun time at the movies experience in some way. Well, the other thing that this movie tackles too, you know, is this idea of uh, dormant violence, you know, specifically in the Vietnam era. Uh, it's sort of an early version of history of violence in that way. A lot of the contemporary reviews of that movie at the time were, saying, you know, well, it's like a soldier coming back from combat, you know, going back to his regular life and people don't understand what he's done and what he's been through and what has he's been forced to do. Uh, and then that violence will then somehow come out in some kind of cathartic way. And there's always in these movies, whether it's History of Violence or um, King of the Answer or, or Unforgiven, you know, there's always this big violence scene at the end with the guy effortlessly taking out yep. the, room of ba bikers or whoever it might happen to be um because it's just been bottled up and the kind of ideas that this inherent violence is always going to be inside of them but i feel like the book when it does get into the vietnam stuff is probably at its worst just because it has passages like uh after killer kane has you know decapitated a, a vietnamese boy and all the everyone's scared of him in his squad and he doesn't understand why because he's completely blocked it out that says you know these guys have been his best friends that and sleeplessness it's like oof <laughs> don't tim o'brien me here mr body come on if you could scrub away the blood do you think we could find where we've hidden our souls oh my god yes that line jesus christ um but what you're saying about the exorcist 3 is similar to that because i love the exorcist 3 i think it's amazing um and i was super excited to see the you know the director's cut when the blu-ray came out uh brad duriff especially you know it was like it's it's so much better you know, yeah they ruined it it's so much better and it's it became a apparent stranger <laughs> it, it became apparent that the reason that Darif li likes it so much is because he's in it so much more i think um but you're right when you leave Blatty alone and let him do a director's cut of Exorcist 3, it is 25 goddamn minutes of him and the Gemini killer Although, just just chatting. 
I, a part of me just loves that stuff though. Like I, I love the director's cut of Exorcist three because it, it I love it, but it just would it never just kind work. Of, it, it doesn't work, but like it hangs in your mind. And I think that's kind of what's exciting or interesting about it. I think like the fact that the, uh, the final cut, they sort of turn it into this like, Oh, and the exorcist shows up and you have an exorcism scene and kind of wraps it up in a bow. It's like, yeah, okay. That's, that's but probably that, better, know, but it's less interesting. That was all forced on them by the producers. Yes, after of an course. Initial yeah. cut, you know, like and even nice, the inclusion uh, of, uh, of Jason Miller was forced on them by the producers mm -hmm. showing up in that scene where they they wanted they wanted the exorcist guy back for a yeah. scene you know but apparently was in such a deep in the throes of alcoholism and uh and and addiction that he couldn't even remember his lines so that's why it's chopped up like that too is he he literally couldn't do because he had wet dialogue yeah, yeah. And wet brain is that the technical term for it that's a term for it yeah do i have wet brain john is that the explanation i think i, I, think I might on? i think that's just age as we were discussing with your father recently yeah yes um yeah i don't know i mean to me exorcist 3 feels like identical to ninth configuration in some way in that it's like it's a spawn of exorcist that's him unsuccessfully trying to refashion those ideas into something else where he has his thematic concerns and comes up with a story to si sort of smush them onto and ends up like pushing the story through the cheese grater of his themes, you know, I, I and coming out exactly with like a mush. With, uh, ninth configuration. Like I think post exorcist, he had these ideas on his mind and he sort of probably looked back and said, well, I've already got this story where I have some of these ideas kind of percolating, I'm going to take it and kind of force them, you know, retrofit them on and rework this story. I, I think that's probably why it kind of turns out the way it does, where it it's very, I don't know, like incongruous, I guess, you know, there's weird shifts and tangents and ideas kind of jammed in there and they don't always connect in the most obvious ways. And, you know, like even by the time you get to the end after... Colonel Kane, who turns out to be not uh, Hudson Kane, but Vincent Kane, kills everyone. And they're, they're talking like, oh, the uh, great psychiatrist here turned out to be a killer, right? He's like, he was the lamb, referring to the whole like P.T. Barton thing. And it's <laughs> just like, wait, how is he the lamb? Like, you know, yes. it's, it's having to go to work back. And I'm like, is there an idea there? And like, stuff like that. Uh, maybe there's not a whole idea there, but it sort of sticks in my mind and has me kind of think back and try to work through some of that. And that, uh, that, that great PT Barnum anecdote they give about the, the lamb getting lamb eaten by the lion every time. The lamb and the panther or panther. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Panther. And, I like uh, his, his pop cultural references a lot. And oh, in this sure. movie, he's got Dracula. He's got uh, this book. He's got Dracula. He's got Superman, Joe DiMaggio, he mentions Portrait of Jenny twice, of course, is The Great Escape. I can't uh, hear God as a foot without thinking of the Monty Python, to, you know, Terry Gilliam animation. Oh, that's true, too. I didn't think of that. But coming down to point. smash people. Um, but uh, in that continues in Exorcist 3, like uh, where Ed Flanders What's basically gives movie? the... The Fly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But Exorcist 3, where um, Ed Flanders uh, playing Father Dyer who basically gives the same performance in that movie as he does in Ninth Configuration, uh, loves It's a Wonderful Life so much. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, some of that stuff's in the, the Exorcist book. You know, I, I think some of it makes it to the film too. Like, oh, so he you, just loves throwing. You look like Paul Newman. I, I think he always loved putting in those pop culture references and 
weird jokes, like there's wordplay or there's uh, sometimes like uh, jokes that are kind of worked into the dialogue, like, oh, he he pronounced young with a J, like it, it, he has to yeah. sort of add that in the text and it, it makes it funny. Like you Sometimes sort of the, the jokes really fire they, they in really this fire, book. Yeah. Sometimes they really hit and you can I mean, see you can tell how he, he was a comedy a, background. Yeah. yeah, why he was a highly paid gag man and comedy writer because sometimes they, they hit. To me, it's, it's too much and too undifferentiated. I have a lot of time remembering which characters are which because they all talk yeah. in that same yeah. patter you know they I mean, all have the same nutso guy patter yeah. you know like too, fake nutso guy too movie clever, nutso guy, too clever that nutso guy. Like, yeah you know that sort of i don't know like marx brothers he kind of like fast quippy kind of deliveries i, I could picture like you know the, yeah. them all kind of delivering dialogue in that way like that's how it's written I, I thought it was even funny too just talking about like how many characters there are in the movie the bicycle uh, the, the bike gang biker gang at the end they're just like generic biker dudes who are kind yeah. of made up but like in the book they I even actually have names, which yeah. I thought was like oh that's strange like and John. the names are terrible Rob yeah. and like Bill whatever the fuck they are they're <laughs> something like that the very generic names I'm like when do these characters even need names I actually hate that scene with the bikers I, I think bikers are just silly as an enemy always it reminds me of the scene in Pee-wee's Big Adventure yeah. is like <laughs> yes. what it reminds me of very much yeah. of like you just picture cuts are all from the bar going I say we let them go you know kind of thing <laughs> with it um but it reminded me of uh dawn of the dead where the bikers show up and it's just i oh, i yeah. can't love that movie because i find that so cheesy you know all of the stuff with the bikers so cheesy and same thing with ninth configuration which is like please don't build your climax to cheeseball biker stuff that's not really in it before that moment. It's like, how is there not a native antagonism for this movie? Isn't it more powerful if he snaps and kills the inmates that have pushed him too far? Isn't it powerful if he kills Groper or there's like standard issue MPs hanging around or something or the police I mean, they, who pull them over? They definitely how, build up Groper like that's going to be what yeah. happens. How, how can you not find better narrative solutions to this? And I'm feels sure if I asked Blatty, he would have a thematic reason for it mm -hmm. is what I don't like about it. I think he wants it to be I, I think he wants an it intimidating to be the, uh, other. Had a pillar squashers, you know, these others, these bullies that- uh, yeah. yeah. And so he envisions bikers as that, which are like- People had a real silly. biker hang up for a while. Like it's in a lot of yeah. movies and stuff where people were like, oh no, bikers with their switchblades and their <laughs> well, it's, chains and like- <laughs> It's a product of the, of the counterculture of the yeah. era. They were, they were a symbol at that time, you know, especially after Hunter S. Thompson's book about them. And then their association with like, you know, the Rolling Stones and yeah. pop music. In the book, it feels like, like the, the scene that he speeds through the quickest, like he like yeah. wants to get past What's it so quickly. crazy yeah. is the book, it's, um, it goes by in, um, basically a chapter yeah. in the film i remember like the, the film the uh, reveal that oh like kane is uh, really uh, you know he's uh, really vincent kane like that that happens at like the hour and a half mark it's almost a two and a half hour long movie they're in that biker bar for a long time <laughs> like that that takes up so much more time 
in the film version relative to the rest of the story, whereas in the book, like it's, you know, third last chapter, it's, it's close to the end and it's sort of a brisk, you know, the chapters are so short and the, uh, get Joe Lynch, you want to put quick, them on screen know, as long as you he, can. Like maybe, but you know, even in the, the chapter, it doesn't even finish the whole fight scene. It's just like, and then the other bikers came at him and like, yeah. You know, and then, it's, and then it's it cuts like to him going home. Yeah, you know, it's like he didn't really want to dwell in this. And then the film version, it turns into this whole like action scene where he's tossing yeah. guys and like. Yeah, it reminds me actually of not Joe Lynch, we Richard were, Lynch. I apologize, Richard. What Lynch. we were um, what we were talking about with Unforgiven, John, where I I hate it when things are kind of being realistic and then it builds to a big action climax where the main character is like an invincible superhero. You well, know? It always feels like a betrayal of the themes where it's like, okay, you were holding off on all this stuff. So now you can have the big badass action scene. We earned it, guys. Let's go in yeah. and punch some baddies. Like, it, it, you know, there's in the book uh, it plays better because the, the book, book it, it makes you better, it yeah. makes you feel like you want that anger. You know yeah. that you want him to tear him apart, and you're going, well, I know I don't want that. I know that's bad, yeah. but he's he's tweaks that much better. And the movie it does feel like, okay, boys, time to kick back and right. pop some I mean, brewskis other, and other high fives. Much worse, you know. But it's yeah. like it, it's that thing where. You know, you sort of feel almost like, okay, you held off on all these themes and you're sort of critical of violence and this and that. And it's like, okay, now we can have the big action scene. Like, there's a couple of films that do that. And it's you gotta have Clark Kent coming back out of pettiness to beat up the bully. Yeah, (laughs) it feels exactly like that. (laughs) Holy shit. That's exactly what it feels like weird if it's that superman scene all over again um i know i sound like i'm hard on both the novel and the movie and i don't i don't necessarily mean to be i will say this week i've been rereading testaments to uh betrayed by milan kundera and uh romantic Mm. lives romantic truths by renee gerard yeah Yeah. and and like rereading the books they talk about or like thumbing through them when they mention like you know uh jacques le fatalist or the red and the black if you know don quixote Quixote. if yeah gombrowitz all these different things sort of going through rabelais and picking up chapters madame bovary and war and peace does he talk about good soldier uh Swike, 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 which, uh, not, uh, not much in Testaments Betrayed. Oh, okay. Right. He talks about that more in, in Art of the Art Novel. Art of the Novel, yeah. But, but spending a lot of time around great criticism and the greatest novels ever read did make me want to hurl the ninth configuration across the room a few times. <laughs> it is, it is, it is, um, I really like it, but it's also like the definition of a bad book. You know what I mean? Like it's, I feel like there's an objective level on which it's bad. Yeah. Yeah. And like it's artistic strategies are dumb. And I, you know, I don't even mean that as an insult. I just mean that there's a lack of refinement to its strategies that is shocking in relationship to the refinement of its themes i feel like i feel like he makes an incredibly clever argument for why god doesn't come down and perform some miracles and show that he's real right now uh which is that if he came down and performed a miracle a week later everyone would be like well i didn't see it is it true or not you know what happened it was mass hysteria mass hypnosis who knows if this miracle even happened so you can't ask god to come down and be continuously performing miracles to prove he's real think of it's like turning 
God into a, a trick dog who's like begging to be believed in. And I think that that's, it's hard to argue with that concept. And it's also true. Why are police, if you take Christian history to be true, 2000 years ago, God performed a lot of fucking miracles. You know what I mean? And now there are people who are like, that's not realistic. That didn't happen. Therefore, I don't believe because they weren't around to see the miracles firsthand. And that's where non-belief comes from. It's essentially that God has the inability to make you believe in him, that the way that reality is configured uh, is that he can't do it according to this reality. That's, of course, it doesn't address the, you know, why would God create a rock so big he can't lift it problem. But you have to assume that there's some unknowability to God, you know, that God is beyond our range of knowledge and understanding because there are limits to human knowledge and understanding. You know, it's the world's smartest dog problem, you know, where you can find the world's smartest dog and it will never, ever in a million years understand a cell phone, you know, <laughs> like there's just a limit to its knowledge. At a certain point, there's a limit to human knowledge. And you have to assume that if there's an omniscient being, which encompasses the totality of existence, that's beyond our knowledge at a certain point. So he's going to do things beyond our understanding. That's the nature of existence, that there's things beyond our understanding. So then to reduce God to coming down and being like every week, putting on the God show to show he can do anything, to make the sun do figure eights in the skies for 16 hours straight, whatever the example in the book is, you do go, oh yeah, you know, it's easy to say if I was God, no one would doubt it. You know what I mean? That's an easy position to take until you think about the practical application of it according to how reality is currently configured, you know? Well, I think sure, all that I mean, fits, fits in really nicely, too, with the conversation we had about galactic, galactic pot healer and the idea that, you know, if God was among us, then what? why wouldn't we all be gods? Like, why couldn't we all become one within yeah. this universe? And I think that, you know, thematically, Vladdy kind of appreciates human flaws the same way that Phil Dick does. Um, kind of weaves them into the story in terms of, you know, even though someone is psychologically broken or disrepaired, that it's something that, and then it's the question they ask in the book too about Hamlet, which is, you know, if Hamlet is acting crazy, does acting crazy make him crazy? Like, you know, does that, is that a cause of that exact effect? And I think it's, that if uh, acting crazy is the only way for him to stay sane, you know? Yeah. yeah. That'd be great. Yeah, exactly. That's um, suggested that that's uh, I mean, what's sort of funny about that scene, too, is after uh, Kane finds out that Reno's basically just fucking with him, like he's not, uh, he, he doesn't earnestly believe this argument, but he's making this argument to Kane, and Kane's kind of like, yeah, that, that actually makes some sense. <laughs> and it's, you know, sort of, of course, trying to explain his psychological state, but uh, like you're talking but about- But to a dog for this, he's trying to win an argument with a dog that he's cast in Hamlet exactly. in one of his yes. dog Shakespeare plays. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, you can tell Blatty is smart, as frustrating as the structuring and how these ideas are presented sometimes but is. But that's like, why, but I mean by the yeah, themes are smart. It, anyway, the the themes are smart. Sophisticated. Well, sure. I mean, like, you know, in a lot of these discussions, I mean, for me, just, since this is coming up, like about the nature of the miraculous and why you would 
look for a human solution. Like to me, part of the reason why I find that compelling as opposed to like, I don't, you know, there's like some dumb Christian movies where at the end they have like a literal miracle happens, right? And that's supposed yeah. to prove God. But like, I think if there is a God, it would be, it would prove that there isn't a God if you could have miracles because it would be like a fallible universe that's irrational, that is imperfect in some way when you can have something that breaks the laws of nature. And that would show that like, things weren't created perfectly and there's not necessarily an intelligence behind that. If you could have these random things happening, I think if you look at a miracle, like uh, I think what Ninth Configuration is trying to portray, or you think of like uh, Andre Rublev, the miracle of the bell happening, these sort of human miracles. Yeah. Like, I always find spring. that more compelling. Like, uh, you know, if there was a God, it would be that... Um, existence itself is miraculous enough to say that like well like how much bigger of a miracle could well, you that's want what I always, that's, being that's alive a, you know that's a variation on what i always say is yeah. the world is mysterious enough you don't need mysticism no. like you don't need magic mystical yeah. stuff the world is a total fucking mystery without it being magical on top of it you know without it being mystical in some way and the exact nature of a god if there is a god like they do kind of get into it with this uh, capital f foot <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, that's sort of like when you hear people talk about uh, the, the flying spaghetti monster, like it could be anything out there. It could be a giant foot. Yeah. Uh, like there's no way to say like, oh, it's a Christian God or it's, uh, you know, this or that. Like there, there's no way to know that or prove that. So it might as well be anything. And like, you know, I, I think like you can tell even though Vladdy's coming from a theistic perspective, he really tried to think about these questions and take them seriously. And it's somebody who actually you know, maybe not necessarily struggled, but like really tried to consider what his theistic point of view is and not yeah. just kind of take it as a given, which I appreciate. Like, I think it feels people... like he's talking, trying to talk himself into non-belief and losing yes. the arguments. Yeah. These feel like dialogues within himself where he's like, okay, let me play literal devil's advocate and try and talk myself out of these things. And he loses them. They don't feel like and acts of cleverness in some way. I'm not sure I find all of them the, as convincing as the others, but or, or like uh, even they're they're well talk reasoned. about the um, you know the heat death of the universe and that the whole argument and like I love that the punctuation at the end with Cutshaw it's not he said like yeah it kind of yeah that makes sense but like I don't feel it you know yeah. like you, you, like at some point you know these arguments they can be rationally very logical and uh, presented well and you can still just be like yeah but I don't buy it like that's but no that's that that's the brothers Karamazov right yes. Ivan believes or Ivan does not believe but Ivan does not choose right? Yeah. That, that your faith is not a matter of, okay, now I believe that, you know, that your thoughts come to you and you're not in charge of the thoughts. They just enter into your mind and sort of take possession of you. That's one of the things that Kundera talks about in Testaments Betrayed is Nietzsche's idea of like, how strange our thoughts are, where they come from, and that they seem to approach us like a wave cresting and then fill us up and then go out. And we think of them as being our thoughts, but they're actually these things that flit into our mind and flit out. And the ones we think of as being true or not true, that we believe or not believe, we're not really in charge of that. And Nietzsche's whole ideas, of course, is this is why philosophy is a bullshit discipline and we need a new style of it because you try and build systems, right? Where the weakest points of the system have to be taken as uh, on the same level of the strongest points. That is the things we believe naturally. We have to treat with the same attention as the things that we're just trying to fill in the gaps in narrative with, you know, the, the spiders trying to fill in the holes with webbing, you know, is the, is the metaphor that uh, I 
I'm not sure if it's Kundera's metaphor or if it's Nietzsche's metaphor, but it's mentioned in that book. And I think um, Kane's arc two in the book is yeah. that he's trying to ultimately get away from God, right? It's interesting that he yeah. has, um, speaking of books, he's got uh, the uh, Pierre uh, Tyler and de Chardin book. And Chardin was, you know, famously a Jesuit priest whose main theory was the Omega point. That's belief that uh, the universe is uh, fated to spiral into one final point of unification. So that every, every, piece of matter at the end of the world will come together in some way and Kane describes his faith as being basically that it's just easier to believe in god than in science he has this whole bio biochemical argument for the existence of god that basically says can you imagine this ninth configuration where all these molecules appear by chance uh they require a volume of matter or more than, you know, he actually name drops brothers Karamazov that in that passage where he says it would be, uh, um, 200 and something power billions of a year, so many zeros that it wouldn't even fit in a edition of the Band brothers Karamazov and this whole <laughs> idea of entropy that, um, that's all going to come together. But I think that by at the end, by sacrificing himself for captain Billy and by all these people, leaving you know the place being shut down center uh, 18 being shut down and everyone kind of going about their own destinies and their own past speaks again to that human miracle that has occurred where everyone now is allowed to go out and be themselves and not be this collective uh surface that they've they've all put up and when they come to this place and they've all become uh the same like you said sort of the characterization of the same sort of psychobabble and cleverness that they all sort of you know put up when they all leave that sort of is the good thing for all of them they're kind of going away from god at that point for me that was something that was sort of lacking in the film version like you have the scene with Cutshaw coming back from the epilogue but i really like sort of the little additions of what happened with each soldier kind of going off in their own directions and how their lives kind of ended up or uh you know, and the very last one, of course, is Groper throwing himself on the grenade, which is something that they sort of talked about, like, yeah, yeah selfless sacrifice. And, you know, like earlier, they're having this debate and he's like, yeah, it doesn't happen. That moment of human of miracle. Exactly. That that moment of goodness that uh, Cutshaw insists doesn't happen in real life. Yeah. It is just a human, human instinct. And, and it is a human The film instinct. kind of puts a damper on that by having like it's really sort of this ambiguous but it's it's more like a miracle miracle where uh Kachos metal shows up that it that kane had and it's like proof oh, of the afterlife it, which is almost it, antithetical which, to the end of the book to me feels like it kind of ruins the the point a little bit of what the book was getting at and I, it's I, weird I yeah much better so i i don't know why bloody changed that if you just like had to turn around and he's like no, there's got to be an afterlife or whatever, but, uh, you know. He did lose the argument with himself. Yes, <laughs> he did, but that's like a, a little bit uh, dirty pool, you know, if you end your film that way. Like, to me, that the ending of the book yeah. not fair. Yeah, although it is funny, when I was reading the book, I, th I thought, what is the first artwork that did that very cliched anything touching on vietnam has to do that american graffiti ending of the and then billy thing. yeah and then oh, billy went yeah. away and got shot by the Viet Cong. joe got married jim we didn't hear much from him anymore you know that like the birthday boy sketch makes fun of you yeah. know um where it, it's it's in, it's in so many movies yeah that. like what is the first one this is 66 has got to be an early instance it's of this because i was Although, thinking like, I wonder if this is from like the, the by me and those kinds of movies but uh, yeah 
Um, I always think of it as the American graffiti. Ending. Or American graffiti is yeah. the obvious one, yeah. yeah. And that's exactly, like, if they were going to do that ending from the book in the film, that's exactly how it would be with that text. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would work. You know, but... Um, it, it's still like I don't know. You saying the ending of American Graffiti doesn't work, John? I want you on the record. I in that configuration, it wouldn't work. It works for American Graffiti. It works for Animal House. It wouldn't have worked here. Um, I think I feel like if you my saw favorite the, Vietnam movie, Animal House. I feel like you could come through, come out of that movie. Yeah, what's his name? Uh, oh, I'm not gonna think of his name. Someone dies in Vietnam at the end of uh, Animal House. Um, I feel like if you watch the movie, though, you come away not knowing what the fuck the ninth configuration means. Yeah, yeah. That, I don't the think the argument it. actually comes up in the movie, does it? Uh, no, they don't do I that whole thing it. about the spontaneous yeah. generation of life. Even in the book, it doesn't make the phrase the the conversation makes sense. But then when they're like, "It's called the ninth configuration," you're like, "Wait, why is it called why is that? the ninth configuration?" Yeah, it just sort of like <laughs> zooms over it in a way. But that's a much much better title than Twinkle Twinkle Killer Kane. Sure. So I'll allow it. I'll <laughs> it allow is, it. It, it. It is, but it works better in the ninth gate, though. And uh, to <laughs> me, like there, there is something that sounds like vaguely religious about ninth configuration, like ninth yeah, station. That, sure. you know, it has that kind of like sound to it, where it's like ooh, like especially when you know it's from the author of The Exorcist. It's yeah. Like, it's very Book of Revelations. The Exorcist also made this movie called The Night Configuration. You're like, oh shit. I have no <laughs> idea what that is, but the title's enough for me to be sold completely. And the poster is like a crucifix on the moon? What? Oh my god, I gotta see this. But talking This about is gonna make the things. most sense. <laughs> but speaking of tracing things back, it was apparently the origin of the Howie Scream, which of course everyone thought was from Firestorm. Howie Long right. screaming, yeah, but it was but, the same yeah. sound effect from the ninth configuration. In the bar fight, that's right. That's a very familiar sound effect. You, I'm sure, hear it everywhere. I certainly in, in Howie Long screaming. What is it? In, is it in Broken Arrow that he does it, or is it? Oh, you're right. It's Broken, Broken Arrow. Arrow. You're yeah, right. Broken I was Arrow thinking Firestorm. Because when I think Howie Long. I immediately think Firestorm, obviously. Well, I thought that was a joke because you and I are always talking about Firestorm. <laughs> <laughs> No, it was. Uh, and it's in Last Action Hero. It's in Natural Born Killers. It's in Harold and Kumar Part 2. So, yeah. When, when is it in Harold and Kumar Part 2? Of all those movies, I'm the one that, that's the one that I'm like, I know that movie the most intimately. At what moment does it happen? I'll send you a clip. <laughs> I will definitely. I'll keep my eyes peeled next time I watch that movie later this week. I only brought one DVD. To, this is a true story. I only brought one DVD to Delaware with me for my recovery from surgery. You're such a hypocrite. And it is, and it is, no, that's not true. I brought the Mad Max box set, but I also brought Harold and Kumar go to Guantanamo Bay. Those are the only DVDs I brought with me. Those are some good de desert island picks for sure. Sometimes it's good when you only have a finite number of films and you're kind of trapped in a place. Like I remember being in uh, China and just like I had my little computer or laptop and like I only had films that I could fit on there so yeah. i watched like the same couple of movies over and over again and you get like really familiar with them <laughs> well my dad has the fully stocked dad blu-ray oh, yeah. collection so if you want to watch die hard you want to watch the indiana jones you want to watch the matrix you want to watch terminator 2 alien we got him we got the fully stocked any marvel movie he's got him
fully stocked and i knew that so i was like I'm, i want to watch shit like die hard i don't want to watch oh, now, I got, now i gotta mention recovery yep. now i gotta mention a great joke from a, a short video that chris made in high school where two guys are trapped alone in a house and the only two movies to watch are speed and ace ventura 2 <laughs> and it would have been at a time when speed was like the most like oh not speed again like it was on tv all the time and they're and they're possibly in hell in it. They're trapped in like a suburban house that may or may not be hell. This guy and like a dude he's kind of friends with, who he keeps getting into like. It's a classic. The best movie ever made by a sixteen year old. You know what? That movie is very ninth configuration esque now that I think about it. <laughs> It it's is. very William Peter Blatty in style and execution. And it's titled Shift Lower. Comedy. It's titled Shift Lower is very religious sounding as well. Yes, that's true. Just taken from a uh, a button on the oven. That's where we got the title. A little button that said Shift Lower. I'm sure, that's where it. the night configuration comes from. <laughs> <laughs> Set it to uh, Mart, the night configuration. We, shall, we move on, shall we move on to desserts? To our dessert pairings sure. guy, Martin. I'm think, really loving this conversation. If you have more to say, don't let me. Uh, maybe the only thing. Rough shop. Like, I already sort of mentioned. I, I I prefer the ending of the book, but one thing I thought was disappointing that they removed was the line about how does it feel being on the moon? And he's like, depends who's with you. Yeah. Well, we didn't really get into uh, the reason why Cutshaw was like afraid of going to the moon, but he, he explains it to Kane after the big uh, action scene uh, that, you know, he was afraid that if there's no God that uh, you go to the moon and you die alone, you die like really alone. Yeah. <laughs> You're far from every other human being. And just that, uh, <laughs> I lost my train of thought. Just far from every other human being, far from all of that. Yeah, and you know that, like, to me, that's so sort of existentially frightening. The idea of like being yeah. in outer space, I always find so scary. Like, um, I always like, I'm not clearly, I'm not somebody who would ever, ever, under any circumstances, find myself on a space rocket. But I've had like nightmares of uh, just being in a spacesuit and like drifting in the wrong direction and there's nothing to kick off and nobody uh. go back and it's so like anxiety inducing and you know like for anyone to have the, the sort of nerves of steel to go up into space I, I think that's really amazing but uh, you know I, I the idea of somebody like Cutshaw like I found that kind of relatable actually yeah no way it's where such... it's like oh my like I can't imagine dying like way out there far away from everyone especially if it's just like emptiness out there it's so terrifying that transitions yeah. so perfectly into my dessert martin let me know if you have anything more to say because that was it that, that was <laughs> i can my... continue that thought and, and i also have anxiety dreams only i'm usually um trapped out alone in, in open water in the middle of the ocean is usually my oh, i never that. have that that's a real uh fear that's an waking anxiety i'll have because my dad and i used to scuba dive quite a bit and like getting caught in open ocean like the open water thing of like the the boat leaves without you because they didn't do a head count total real like not a nightmare but a reverie like oh shit yeah. i hope that never happens oh yeah same here uh but i really i, I do really like the the idea of billy cutshaw and I, again that sort of was sort of the idea that i like that it's connected to the exorcist for that same reason that you know you have a little girl tell you prophesize that you'll die if you go up into space and then it leads into this psychotic breakdown by the guy because he actually thinks he will die up there and experience that kind of lonely death um which is why my de a dessert pairing would be uh memories of the space age by james graham ballard jg ballard which is um you guys probably know this book it's um 
a series of stories that are centered around a deserted uh, post-apocalyptic Cape Canaveral, right? And uh, the first story was actually written in 1962. It was called The Cage of Sand. Uh, and then he would write other books, uh, other stories rather, uh, centered around Cape Canaveral that he then collected into this collection in 1988. But uh, Cage of Sand introduces this idea of sand being brought back from Mars and dumped along the Caspian Sea from which uh, viruses spring forth and destroy all plant life. So it's sort of uh, creates a post-apocalyptic Earth. And one revelation of the characters is that Earth is now being terraformed to become a new Mars in sort of the Colorado space annihilation vein. Um, and it has a character, an astronaut named Travis, who experienced the same thing as Cutshaw. He panicked in his launch rocket and therefore never completed his mission to space. And one of the occurring, recurring images from all these stories are these dead astronauts who have been left up in space and whose corpses are orbiting the Earth endlessly. So it yeah. has this sort of dread uh, image throughout these stories. Um, but it's a fantastic collection. Um, it's, I, I kind of think of it as like the King of Marvin Gardens meets existential science fiction uh, in that very unique way that J.G. Ballard can only uh, can only do, uh, but also, it shares I'm with. Not, uh, hmm? I'm not really familiar with J.G. Ballard, so that actually. Oh really? Like maybe I should. I, oh yeah, you'd uh, love it. It's fantastic. Yeah, that, that actually sounds like a good entry point. I, I don't. I haven't gotten around to it. He's one of those. He's commit, one of yeah. those authors that people love to make sound impossible, but the books are actually easy. He's okay. he's one of those guys that people love to make it sound like you're in for tough sledding and they're not, they're very readable. They're very, very readable. I'd say yeah, he's, they're, they're he's an easier read than Philip K. Dick. Oh, because John, what you were saying, like that sounds perfect for something I would want to read. Yeah, no, Martin, I think you'd love it. And uh, if it's in with the ninth configuration, not only because of the spiritual death and the technological, technological age, which is sort of Ballard's, you know, running theme, but also because it has this idea of space being where God is, you know, or like the vacuum representing God's absence and how mankind left to its own devices will have that crushing loneliness that's palpable in space travel representing what's beyond, i.e. nothing. So the idea again of dying up in space means that you just you're dying among a vast nothing, and this is this is where heaven's supposed to be. This is where God is supposed to exist, and there's nothing, and you're completely there's no alone. heaven above the clouds. It's uh, it's hell up there, really. Exactly. Like, all these cosmic terrifying phenomenon and just the emptiness, like you know the the idea of uh, Sheol, yeah. like the uh, the hell as being the separation from God and just like non-existence and like the vastness of space and how you kind of disappear to that like a grain no, of sand. No, my my son is obsessed with astronomy and cosmology and space stuff and it's hard for me because that shit is terrifying he's like deeply interested in like the functioning of black holes and the nature of what they are and what they would do to matter and how they interact with matter and time and he's like a little kid who really likes watching errol morris's brief history of time right yes. and saying dad you'd be squashed into spaghetti <laughs> You know, and yeah. and to me, it's hard because it's very fun for him. But to me, when we're having these conversations, it's like, holy shit, this is terrifying. You know, like this is giant. Uh, if I didn't have my son who's charming and making it fun for me, I don't want to think about what quasars are. No. You know, like the, I the don't. The scale of them is like something inherently terrifying about something that big. Like, yeah. you know, and, and like what could it like... be? And every answer is like, 
mind melting. <laughs> yes. You know, it, it just puts into perspective our own sort of lack fragility, of magnitude and fragility smallness. and just yeah. our, our smallness. And, you know, that's very, very terrifying. And just physically, like trying to, the more you understand the universe, the more you realize like how our place in it doesn't really make that much uh or our, our perspective on it, how limited that is in talking about like yeah. the relativity of time and how, oh, time slows down as you approach the speed of light. So you've got the twins where one ages and one doesn't. And just, you know, yeah. these things that we take as reality on your own, you sort of realize aren't reality the way we experience time and all that. So Yeah, I, and I even just what you're that. saying, you're talking about the existential terror of dying in space. When you think about the earth as a thing floating in space, we're yes. already there. We're, spinning we're around already, it. and we're going to die floating in space. You know, we're completely at the mercy of this Flamey lips giant flaming explosion, this perpetual explosion that's, yeah. you know, it, it's so... The sun doesn't care if we're alive or not. Yeah, just the solar flare, solar flare like that for no destroy reason at all. every electronic thing on Earth randomly one day. You know, you read about the Cambrian <laughs> die-off; like it could just cook us all one day out of complete apathy. Like it doesn't care if we're alive yeah. or dead. Like you know, maybe maybe the sun it makes more sense to. Although they think that's yeah. volcanoes now, which is even worse oh. somehow. <laughs> that they think the it was like super yeah that it yeah that it was like yeah. worldwide massive super volcanoes. Or, uh, you know, when they talk about like, oh yeah, during the um, uh, Carboniferous period, how the Earth almost became a permanent ice ball, and all life would have been extinguished. And it's like, oh yeah, good, good like, good thing we had thermites creating, uh, <laughs> putting carbon back in the atmosphere, just like stuff like that. You're like, oh my god, like our our existence is so precarious that you know, yeah. I, like again, I think. But I also find alive at all is miraculous. Yeah. So I, yeah. I don't it lightly. It's interesting though that I do find I find the expanses of space very unsettling but i yes. find deep time very comforting i find the idea of the eternity of time very comforting in same way it gives my somehow the finiteness of my life gives meaning to it the idea of an afterlife is actually way more upsetting to me than anything else that there's no vision of eternal life that sounds like heaven to me that sounds yes. i can't Again, I, there's limits to your knowledge. Is just, yeah. It would be too much like heaven. The experience the of it, I would no longer be me yet. to have to be yes. able to enjoy it, you know? You know? Also knowing that, that this is unrelated, but if you're in heaven, like what, you know, you get up there and you're like, oh, I'm great. This is so wonderful. All my friends and family are here. Where's my mom? Oh, she's roasting in hell. What? <laughs> of course. For all I mean, eternity. You know, there's my, my mom. She's such a sweet lady. On yeah, a, on an afterlife and reincarnation and stuff like that. Yeah, like the, the the Christian one, which like really is sort of weird bastardization of the uh, like Hellenistic yeah. beliefs, but like it's one of the least compelling. <laughs> like it's, it's well, uh, if that, you uh, actually read what it says about the afterlife in the Bible, it makes well, there's not really anything sense. there. But like you, you know, you talk about what most Christians believe, yeah. which isn't necessarily yeah. the same thing as the Bible. But yeah. talking about that like long time scale, like there is something comforting about. Uh, Oh yeah, like you know, it's going to go on for billions and billions of years, and it's been around for billions and billions of years. And you know, in in a way, you feel like okay, you're just part of this link in a chain, and that's that is sort of comforting, whether you're here or not. You know, that's that's no big deal. It, it, that yeah. kind of leads into my uh, dessert, actually, which is the um, a movie called uh, Last and First Men by Johan Johansson. Oh, it's a great book. Uh, I don't know. It, I it's uh, based on a science fiction-ish book mm -hmm. from the. It's considered one of the like premier science fiction. Yeah, books. yeah. <laughs> but um, the the film he's a 
he died recently, the, the filmmaker, he was also a composer for like a lot of uh, Denis Villeneuve's films. But he made this movie that's uh, very abstract. A lot of it's just done through narration and these sort of abstract images. And it's sort of considering, you know, maybe the distant future without humanity, like, you know, what the earth might be like uh, two million years from now, or, you know, so far into the future that like you can't even really comprehend and um, you know for me talking about these uh, some of these questions about the heat death of the universe and entropy and humanity's future sort of uh, I don't know that, that was the one thing I watched this week that kind of coincided with the ninth configuration you know I think I, I don't know maybe earth like it, it uh, for most of the history of life on earth it belonged to these like single-celled organisms I think probably by the end it's going to go back to the <laughs> That's great. I love the Stapleton book. I'm going to have to check out the movie. Yeah, the movie, it's very, like, it's probably what people think of as, like, a stereotypical art house movie. It's black and white and these abstract images of, like, weird architecture. And what am I even looking at? It's this weird, totally alien future. But I, I don't know, I, I like that kind of stuff. Like, uh, like one thing I've, I've sort of been thinking about a lot lately is how, like, part of what's terrifying about the future is how things become normal that are absolutely like horrifying. And like, it's not that like they'll be perpetually horrifying, it's that people will just kind of accept them and go along with them. And like the, the horrifying becomes the new normal. Like uh, one of my favorite science fiction movies is the THX 1138. And like, you know, if you, if you had like a life that messed up and weird and horrifying, like would you even be able to tell that that's what that was or would it just feel completely normal like it's been sort of well haven't you ever have you ever heard um have you ever heard interviews with uh defectors from north korea yes Uh, yeah yeah where they're like look i know this sounds crazy but when i left north korea i got out here and i didn't realize kim jong-un can't fly i didn't realize human beings aren't capable of flying you just hear this your whole life that this guy can fly that he can just jump up in the air and fly and i didn't know that they can't fly you know like you have no context uh for any of that stuff and i think that also people get worked over psychologically though i I think there's evidence that kids who grow up in horrible circumstances have an seated awareness in it you know that comes out in other ways you know i maybe they don't necessarily identify it and reconcile it but i think there is an inherent human awareness of like this is not what it should be in some way and i think that's what the human spirit bristles against yeah you know i mean that like to me that's what the the chx 1138 it's kind of about is that desire to escape from that even if you don't know what you're escaping to and you just um, lately i sort of feel more and more like not, not i'm not that doom and gloom actually i'm i'm probably more optimistic than a lot of people but yeah. like a part of me just sort of feels like uh, i i don't know like i, I sort of think about like uh, you know what what's life going to be like in 20 years what's it going to be like in 75 years what's it's going to be like yeah. in a thousand years you know are there going to be people around fifty thousand years from now are there going to be people around uh, a million years from now maybe not probably not is the earth going to be around a billion years from now <laughs> like you sort of you know think about this and start yeah. thinking about on this time scale and uh, you know the the distant future is a lot less scary than the near future it's also the theme of yeah. Martin Campbell's No Escape. <laughs> <laughs> I Chris, think about. Let this lead I, into your dessert, Chris. 
Oh, oh, I was just going to say that within terms of time, I have a tendency to think of my son's lifetime and then my grandkids, my son's sons. And now that I have a son and I really don't think further than that. It's interesting. I used to sort of ruminate on a hundred years now what it's like, but it really does feel like I have more of a sense of like, I will leave and be gone now. And this yeah. is the next thing, it's up to you them. know, it's, and it's interesting. It's biological, you know, yeah. just like the way he affects my thinking and understanding of the world is biological. Again, it's the thought comes to me, Nietzsche style, you know, I'm Ivan believing or not believing. Yes. And it's fascinating. It's like, I, it doesn't bother. If you told me 200 years from now, world will definitely be wiped out of nuclear war. My brain goes, well, my son and my son's son are going to be fine. And yeah. that is like the reaction I like sincerely, even as no, I'm saying yeah, it now. I get that. Yeah. Yeah. If you said 15 years from now, there's going to be a major war. I'm going to be like, oh my God, well, where are we going? What are we doing? We got to move down to Bogota. Is that the yeah. plan? Are they going to be affected? You know, that kind of, kind of stuff for it. Okay. This has nothing to do with my dessert selection, John. My dessert Martin selection. Campbell's no skate is is by uh philippe de broca who is the director of my favorite french swashbuckler cartouche i'm going to go ahead and say the greatest of all the french swashbucklers starring jean paul balmondo and claudia cardinal it is a phenomenal movie it's as good as any of the golden era swashbucklers in general the french swashbucklers are not that great all of the the post golden era foreign swashbucklers they're not as bad as the italian swashbucklers but in general, they're not that great. But this one is phenomenal. This is a director I like. He made a movie called King of Hearts in 1966, which is about a, um, a little town in France. There's a soldier who's sent in as the World War I is ending to disarm a bomb uh, that's, that's going to blow up this town. That's his, his uh, assignment, his mission. Unbeknownst to him, before he gets to the town, all of the regular citizens have evacuated the town because of the, the uh, bomb in the center of town. And as they did, they opened the lunatic asylum and let the crazy people out to sort of like slow the progress of the incoming soldiers. And the lunatics take over over this town and pretend to be the regular townsfolk when the soldier arrives, right? So he doesn't understand that he's dealing with crazy people. And it's the same kind of like madcap countercultural comedy that is that that uh, Blatty wrote. You know, it's sort of, it's a bit Richard Lester. It's a bit, you know, Blake Edwards from that era. It belongs to that same sort of vein, a bit being there, that, that kind of flavor to it. And this movie was not a hit when it was released. It's most well known. It got an American uh, re-release in 1973 when it was paired with a Lenny Bruce short and Bambi meets Godzilla. And it was like a phenomenal hit because enough time had gone by that it got taken to be a parable about Vietnam at that point and sort of the insanity of the war. And like it has like ninth configuration and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. The like, who's the real crazy one? Is it the crazy people or is it the army you know it has that kind of basic like you know you know it's who's really the homeless one is it me or is it mr wendell you know that kind of like who knows who's actually crazy attitude but it's like it's because it was like a midnight movie and a and a and a like a cult hit in the u.s um uh, that might make it sound more like rough edged than it is it's like a big french big budget 
studio comedy. So it really plays, you know, the way that cartouche really plays. It's like, it's, it's not uh, an alternative film. It's not Jodorowsky. You know, this is not Holy Mountain you're headed into. This is much more in the vein of, of the bigger studio films at the time of the, the Hollywood type films, you know, of the Terry Southern type, you know, type movies. Um, and it's good. And it's obviously, uh, it sounds very similar to Ninth Configuration in its description. I don't think you need a, uh, a, a roadmap to connect it to it. And it's a nice light thing to go out on after you've read Ninth Configuration. It has a much more sort of humanistic, uh, a religious take on all of this stuff. Perfect. That's a great choice as well. Um, I think that's going to wrap it up. Martin, any last thoughts on Ninth Configuration with two minutes left on our Zoom meeting? Uh, no, thank you for having me on. This was very therapeutic somehow. <laughs> I'm glad uh, we were able to talk about it. I think you're always great to have on. You're always a ton of fun. These episodes always. are this so is, it's fun. great. Pick. Like, I'm really glad we read this. I think between the three we've done, this is sort of turning into like a type of book to cover. <laughs> I, I don't know what the, the common ground is between these three, but uh, between Casca and Ninth Configuration and Galactic Podgiller, I feel like there's got to be some kind of thread. The syllabus Religion. for the best damn class you'll ever take in college. <laughs> Religion and eternal soldiers. <laughs> I guess so. Eternity, the human condition. Yeah. Uh, it's sort of like these sort of like a little bit lunk-headed transcendental things. They all split the difference between like goofball sort of basic stupidity and like total yeah. brilliance these weird funny little books that ask big questions i guess yeah <laughs> maybe that's uh, yeah although casca does not ask them so hard <laughs> not, not on purpose <laughs> <laughs> martin thank you very much thank for you. doing the show really truly love thanks having again. you on thanks again martin thanks everybody for listening our, uh, our next book for next month uh, if you'd like to read long is going to be waltz into darkness written by the, the legendary cornell woolrich aka william irish have a good night everyone